Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in Latino Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am David James Gonzalez, the producer and host of today's podcast. In this episode, I am thrilled to have as my guests Michelle Tellez and Christine Vega, co-editors alongside Cecilia Caballero, Yvette Martinez-Vu, and Judith Perez-Torres of the Chicano Motherwork Anthology, Porque Sin Madres No Hay Revolución published by the University of Arizona Press in 2019. Dr. Michelle Tellez is Assistant Professor of Mexican-American Studies at the University of Arizona. She is an interdisciplinary scholar trained in community studies, sociology, Chicano and Chicana studies, and education. Her research centers on transnational community formation, Chicana mothering, and gendered migration, and she has published in several book anthologies and journals such as Gender and Society, Feminist Formations, Atzlan, Feminist Wire, Truth Out, and Latino Rebels. Dr. Christine Vega uh, received her PhD in the Graduate School of Education and Information Studies at the University of California, Los Angeles in 2019. She is also just about to start a postdoc at Colorado State University at Fort Collins in the School of Education. Her interdisciplinary scholarship centers on Chicana and Chicano and Latino and Latina studies in education, gender and sexuality, critical race theory, Chicana feminist theory, decolonial methodologies, and spirituality. She has published extensively in anthologies and journals such as Chicana Latina Studies, Interactions, and excuse me, but my, my pocho tongue is going to kill this, uh, Regeneración Tlacluyoli. Did I mm-hmm. say that right? Yes, you did. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure I butchered it. All right. Yeah. So either way, <laughs> hello, Michelle and Christine. Hi. Uh, I welcome you both to New Books and Latino Studies. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Well, again, I am truly super excited. Um, I know somewhat of the project just because one of the co-editors, Cecilia Caballero, and I attended uh, graduate school uh, together in different departments, but we shared classes. So I was somewhat familiar of of, uh, this project in in some ways and have been watching it from afar and just I'm so excited to see it in press and to have you on the channel today. So really looking forward to this conversation. We are too. Well, as we begin how we normally begin on our podcast, which is I'd just like to ask each of you to take a few minutes and share a little bit about your personal and professional background. Uh, Michelle, do you want to go first? Sure. Um, so again, thank you. It's an honor uh, to be in this conversation with you all, with you both. And um, I grew up in San Diego uh, and along the border between San Diego and Tijuana. And so that experience really shaped who I became as a person, as a scholar, as a community member, as a mother. And that really has shaped, you know, my lifelong projects. Um, And I think that, you know, I went to UCLA undergrad and got my master's at Columbia and my PhD at the Claremont Colleges. And I think that um, along the way, I was always really interested in um, thinking about not just how ideas can change the world, but about how 
uh, our work can transform, you know, um, people's lives in these very material ways. Because I had experienced such extreme racism growing up in a border town, those memories don't, you know, don't go away. And so I think that that is what compelled me to to become a community organizer, to be um, someone who sees herself as doing work that is um, completely embedded in the community. And so I've now lived in Arizona for this summer, 14 years, which I cannot even believe that that's true. Wow. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, you know, I moved here from California um, where I had been organizing with Insight, Women of Color Against Violence, Comité Zapatista, you know, and I really, you know, was really shaped by, you know, those, those, those experiences. And so to arrive in Arizona at the cusp of the Sensenbrenner Bill, you know, at mm. the cusp of all of these, you know, um, migrant rights movements when, you know, basically Arizona became the, the ground zero for, you know, immigrant rights, migrant rights, immigration policies, et cetera. It was like landing in a place where like I was not at all familiar, right? Um, and so we really, uh, really think that these years that I've been here, I've learned a lot as a scholar, as a teacher, um, and then also as an organizer and thinking about how we want to have impact when you're in a place that I think now nationally we're living, um, uh, whereas before it was always like, oh, what's going on in Arizona, right? And so I, I feel really compelled, though, that here in Arizona, there's a lot of amazing things happening. Um, and there's always been people working towards justice. So it, my work is about highlighting that um, in multiple ways. So anyway, I don't want to talk too much, but that's a little bit about me. Great. Thanks for that. Christine? Yes. Um, so I grew up in the Northeast San Fernando Valley in Pacoima. Um, and... You know, I'm first generation Chicana, uh, daughter of immigrant parents from Mexico. And I experienced a lot of, you know, a lot of the marginalization, especially because my first language is Spanish. So um, I actually was sharing the story of, of I remember the racism and I experienced in elementary school um, from a first and second grade teacher. And the way that I was translating uh, the content was through art and I'm one of the artists in our collective. So I have like the artistic freedom um, to do a lot of things within our collective. And I really appreciate that freedom, <laughs> but um, I expressed the content and I translated it through art. And so that wasn't good enough for my teachers, but I was just trying to tell them like, I don't understand or can speak the, the language in English or translate the content in English, but I do understand it. And this is how I see it. And so I remember this particular teacher was extremely racist and um, oftentimes shame my mother and shame me. But when it came to third and fourth grade, I remember this Boricua maestra. Her name was Ms. Dominguez. Um, she was a retired Broadway performer. And she just, she knew Spanish and English. And so she was really great at um, really challenging the pedagogy in the classroom. And, and I'm, I was really excited about how she was teaching us, uh, especially as, you know, children of immigrants, first gen. So I remember in third grade, and I was nine years old, that I wanted to be a maestra just like Ms. Dominguez. And um, as I kept on going towards my like K through 12 experience, I experienced more of the marginalization, placed in remedial classes. There's nothing wrong with remedial classes, 
but I wasn't given the opportunity to think about college at all until right. my senior year when a friend, he was my, I, had, um, I have a friend, I had a friend who was with me in, um, in AP um, Spanish. He's like, girl, you got to start demanding to your counselor that you need to get into the other classes and you need to go to college. And I'm like, well, what is that? What is college? I had no clue. Um, so I started to feel the frustration and the anger that came with not having the information and resources. And alongside that, because I was just kind of like over my experience in, in high school, I started ditching. I started leaving campus. Like I would ditch to my art class, Miss Bonds. I remember she would just be like, look, I don't want you getting caught and getting truant out in the streets. If you need to go somewhere and if you're not going to listen, just come to the class and just paint. Um, and I did that and that's in my art got me into student government. I was recruited through, um, through student to student government because they share like a similar, a similar building to paint their banners. So I was just kind of pushed. I was kind of placed in a place of leadership with these AP students, honors, magnet students. You know, I was over here painting banners for them. Then I was kind of required to go to the events on, um, for student government. And I remember, it was a Cesar Chavez march, and I had no idea who he was. <laughs> Granted, 12th mm -hmm. grade, right? Mm -hmm. I had no idea who he was. I painted the banner. Student government was representing, and I saw Santes. Um, And I'm like, what is this? What is this? And so it happens that one of my, my friends who I was stitching and partying with happened to be Adansante. And I was like, wait. What, what what world is this? Tell me what how I can get involved. So then, through leadership and through getting, I got I, I became truant. Was forced to go to court. Was forced to go to high school, like to, to summer school. All those things changed and impacted me. Um, mm. And I and I give credit to ethnic studies because I was forced to take U.S. history and Chicana Chicano studies in the summer to make up the credits for ditching and being truant, and align that with. First, be, becoming aware of danza and then who Cesar Chavez was, what I represented to our community, I, I it just blew my mind. And then just feeling the fire and the and the passion to pursue a higher education, like learning late on that I didn't have opportunities, um, really, really like basically pissed me off. And so that became my dedication and community college to take all Chicana Chicano studies courses, gender studies courses. Um, and then transferred to UCLA and I got my BAs in Chicana Chicano Studies and Gender Studies. And then there's when I understood um, through the work of Daniel Solorzano um, that there's educational inequalities. Then, then I'm like, I'm doing this in education. I'm going to focus my research on education. So then um, I went to the University of Utah to get my master's in education um, uh -huh. and the Cultural Society and Education program. And then from there, I pursued my PhD with Daniel Solorzano um, in education, race and ethnic studies, which I just recently completed. And so it just started from those very important moments, right? When we're like, I don't want to say being deviant, but being traviesos, right? Like just, <laughs> like you just, you're just tired of the system. So you're out there right. doing something else. But I always felt like there was a bigger purpose for me. And I, I still cannot conceptualize how that works but because I'm very spiritual and I follow the red road I'm like there's a bigger purpose for me to make change and impact the communities that represent that I represent 
And so that's how I got to where I'm at. So then I started working with the Chucha Centro Cultural, where the danza was being held, because I look, I'm like, okay, I need a guru danza. So mm-hmm. then I started, I, that's where my roots of organizing um, took root, is through the Centro Cultural, which is the only bookstore in the Northeast San Fernando Valley, and it's still there. Um, and that's, and everything else is history. So it just really um, transformed me as an individual um, to really be the mirror for my community. Thank you for that. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of those introductions are really great. Um, and I, I feel that it connects so, um, you know, just really explicitly with uh, really how this project came together. I just wanted to begin um, by reading a little bit of what you write in the introduction, you and your, your co-editors and co-authors of this introduction. It says, this edited collection of research, testimonios and essays, about Chicana and other women of color mothering was born out of a collective dream imagined together through tears, laughter, meals, and many, many conversations, unquote. You know, those experiences that you both just discussed, you know, as far as your personal background and what brought you into academia, it seems that, you know, also, right, the the experiences of life, you know, much after that is, and connecting with other Chicanas and women of color has really brought this together. Would you both mind sharing a bit more about how uh, both, uh, you've referred to, you know, this uh, Chicana Madoka as, as a collective, uh, you know, it's a project, it's a number of things. Will you talk a bit more about how this originated? Uh, sure. So um, <clears throat> I talked a little bit about how I came to Arizona. Well, one thing I didn't talk about uh, was that when I moved to Arizona, I was three months pregnant and by myself. Mm. <laughs> and uh, and so moving to a brand new place, um, you know, having finished my PhD, but then start embarking on a new, you know, um, position as a faculty member, but also being pregnant and, you know, came with a lot of feelings <laughs> to say the least and not a lot of institutional support. Right. And so um, in, in navigating those first few years of my life and my daughter's life and being in this new place, being surrounded by like a lot of, you know, uh, really hateful rhetoric. Um, I don't know, it, it medio rabia, right? It gave me a lot of rage mm-hmm. and it reminded me that I uh, had a different kind of voice that I wanted to be able to utilize. And so I started writing. I mean, I think for me, writing has always been cathartic. And so um, I started writing about my experiences and I actually first presented something about Chicana mother work in 2006 at a conference at the University of Oregon with this group called the Future of Minority Studies scholars and so but I didn't actually publish anything for like six years after that because well as the Latina feminist ethnographers group tells us you know sometimes we have these papelitos guardados right that like these little papers these stories that we hide or that we we should not hide but that we're you know holding on to and then mm-hmm. when they're ready to come out they finally come out right and so um, finally, around 2011, I started writing about this idea of what does it mean to, um, you know, mother as a Chicana, as you're navigating, you know, multiple tensions, racial, political, social, um, and then what does it do mean to do this in absence of your community of origin, your family of origin in a new place, you know, dictated by these um, academic norms that you have to move and be far away from where you um from where you're from in order to be successful, right? And so all of that made me question, and I put together these ideas borrowing from Black feminist scholar, Patricia Hope Collins, 
who talks about mother work, right? And so I started thinking about this idea of Chicana mothering and Chicana mother work. And then in 2013, I published a piece called um, uh, Lectures, Diapers, and Evaluations, Navigating the Terrains of, sing- of Chicano Single Mother in the, in the Academy. And, you know, that you write things and you don't know where they're going to land. I see them as offerings, right? And, and sometimes you just kind of, you write them because you have to, right? You must get mm-hmm. them out of your system so that then you are able to heal and move forward. And, you know, um, and so I didn't realize, you know, that this piece was landing in places that um, was resonating with folks, right? And uh, and that's how we initially came together because I get an email in the fall, I think it was the spring of 2014, I get an email from Cecilia and Yvette asking if I would chair a panel presentation on Mothers of Color in the Academy for American Studies Association, um, which was going to be held in, in Los Angeles in that fall. And so I said yes. And as Christine said earlier, the rest of it is history because <laughs> out of those, that first email, you know, we sort of, then I'll, I guess I'll let Christine take over from there. Gotcha. Yeah. Go ahead, please, Christine. Yeah. From that email, well, I guess let me back up a little bit. But, um, you know, being pregnant on campus for me as a Chicana, like these are like indicators of, you know, extra racism. And just yesterday I was reading, um, I was rereading a blog that we have published by a professor, uh, Veronica Fonseca, about her experiences as a Chicana, I'm sorry, Vanessa Fonseca, uh, and in graduate school, you know, she talks about her ethnicity, but she, she highlights how much discrimination she felt or prejudice she felt as a pregnant presenting person. And so that to me resonated because that's exactly how I felt uh, once my partner and I decided to to have a baby. And and I just felt like this is this is not okay. Like just how I feel like education and equities are, are are not okay. I felt like we we need to talk about these these issues. And so I once you're pregnant, you kind of start looking for other people who are pregnant just to acknowledge each other. Mm-hmm. And so I ran into, I met, I bumped into a mujer in the south side of campus at UCLA um, who was wearing, and I always say this story because it's so important about markers. Mm-hmm. Um, she was wearing red lipstick, beaded earrings, and looked brown, like a Chicana. Mm-hmm. And she was pulling this really beautiful um, pulley, like a, like it's like a kind of like a roller backpack. And at that point, I was already eight months pregnant. And everybody's like, Christine, you need to stop carrying a backpack because it's just not good for you and not good for baby. You should consider a, a roller backpack. So I'm like, oh, should I go up to her? She looks like I could approach her. And so I decided to go up to her just to ask her where she bought it because I was really, you know, in need of one. Um, and so she stands up and she's like pregnant. I'm like, oh, okay. And so she happens to be from the same community in the San Fernando Valley. She went to the same high school and was actually um, a summer professor teaching the transfer summer experience or summer programs at uh, UCLA. And I knew my students from Pacoima had just transferred in. And I asked her if she, by chance, was teaching um, Giovanni Ochoa. She's like, that's my student. So there was these really interesting connections. Right. Um, so, and I was like, okay, we need to be friends <laughs> because you're pregnant, I'm pregnant. 
And her due date was only three weeks before mine. So I'm like, we have to just be friends because we need to talk about how we're going to get through pregnancy and grad school at the same time. Um, and so since then, Yvette and I kept a, a connection. I invited her to my um, my academic space with Daniel Solorzano. We call them RACs, the Research Apprenticeship Courses, um, to help me present on what just came out. It was presumed incompetent. And alongside presumed incompetent, um, we, we landed on Michelle's publication, the one that she's talking about. And so we were having these, we were, we were kind of bridging them. And so that's when um, Yvette and Cecilia, I had not met Cecilia, uh, reached out to Michelle for this, this, this panel. And then they invited my, they invited me to join. And they're like, do you know anybody else who might be interested in joining this panel? And I said, you know what? I know somebody I went to grad school with in Utah and she's in education leadership. Let me see if she's interested. And that's Judy. And Judy's like, girl, I'm down. So we're, yeah, so we're like, let's do this. Let's talk about these experiences of, you know, being pregnant, presenting or parenting scholars in the university. And Cecilia is just has this amazing luck that when she emails either really like top notch scholars, they respond to her. Um, So she we got lucky. We got Michelle because we were not expecting a response, to be quite honest. Because, you know, we're grad students and we didn't right. know. We don't know how they're going to respond. But Michelle's like, yeah, let's do it. Um, and so we all finally met in person at ASA. And then we just, it just, it, this, it turned into what we are now. Like five years later, um, our anniversary is coming up in September. Five years later, later we are co-authors of an anthology and right. publications and a podcast. And it's been a beautiful uh, labor of love. So that's that's how we've become who we become. And I and I just want to add that like I think part of that too is that when we came together, we when we wrote that you know this is a collective dream. It's because you know we finally had each other to hear our stories, right, and to hold each other, you know, in in with these stories. And so nothing was ever planned. We had no idea, right, after that first conference presentation that we were going to be together still five years later. We mm-hmm. Initially, we thought, well, you know, what if we write an article together? Oh, yeah, that sounds, like, that sounds like a great idea. And I got some funding. I brought them out to Arizona. You know, we did a retreat. We worked on, the, we worked on an article. And then we are like, you know... This would it would be really great to get this, these ideas outside of the academy, and mm-hmm. you know why don't we start a podcast? Well, okay, you know, and we did a community um, crowdfunding. We got support to buy our equipment. Um, we did a podcast, and then we're like, why don't we? You know, like what if we <laughs> did a book? You know, and and then so we got together in another retreat and that's what we because we, we all work virtually we don't we don't all live in the same city and so right you know so we get together and we come up with these ideas well let's do this let's put the call out and we never imagined you know that we would it would resonate so much i mean we we put a call out in like say october of 2016 and mm-hmm. by and we with a really quick deadline and we thought you know we'll get a handful it'll be enough for the anthology we got like over 80 submissions and yeah and 
And so, which was then what made us realize that we wanted to have, um, to create an online blog of, uh, where we publish some of these stories that were not allowed in the anthology itself, right? And so that's how the blog was created. So when we when we say a collective dream, it's almost like, you know, we, we, we sit with each other and we think about like, what is it that we um, um, think we need as a community? And that's what we start building towards. Right. You know, what strikes me is is how, as you mentioned, how how just incredibly this resonated. You know, that call eighty six, I think, or something like that, is what you right. cite in the introduction um, submissions. Um, that's incredibly. I mean, that's just impressive. Yeah. Um, and on top of that, I'm thinking, you know, how it resonates because all of you are feeling right isolated. Um, sort of, you're, you're dealing with these issues, uh, these vulnerabilities, and uh, you know, that risk that's involved in, in, you know, listing that call or reaching out, you know, as Christina was speaking, you know, in regards to Cecilia and others to, to a, you know, a professor, right. Uh, and getting involved and just, uh, the community that you all have built from this, I think is so inspiring. Thank you. Yeah. And also, I mean, and, and it's, and as it's mentioned, I mean, this is much more than a book and not only it's, it's, it's really emphasized the fact that it's, you know, this is a book published by a university press. Um, that is incredible in itself. Um, particularly with the, the type of project, the way you define this project, what you're engaging with, what you're challenging. I mean, do you want to speak more to that in regards to, you know, uh, how this project itself is, you know, a, a strategy of resistance. It's a, you know, effort, you know, to build community. It's a platform to express, you know, voices uh, of women, mothers of color, particularly in, in this field of professional endeavor uh, that are, you know, silenced or, or usually not heard. Yeah, we do. We do. Um, th- that is sort of what, how we're trying. We, uh, initially, it was like, how do we think about what it means to be a, mother, a Chicana mother, right? And then we started realizing that this concept, Chicana mother work, um, c- would be more than just a descriptive, you know, idea. It's actually, a, we hope, a tool that people can hold on to, to understand the layers of labor that are involved in mothering and how they are different uh, for women of color and for us particular when we're thinking about you know our histories of colonization our histories of migration our histories of language loss our histories of you know sort of being embattled in, in two different kinds of of worlds right um, and so we wanted to really speak to that and and by using this concept we hope that people can um, think about you know their faculty uh, in in a different way by understanding those those experiences and also in helping you know um, you know faculty themselves or activists or other kinds of professionals and or mothers who are working in their homes um, or in their communities to to understand that their labor is 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 important you know um, in our society. And that mm-hmm. um, it is often invisibilized, right? Right. Yeah. So true. Uh, Christine, did you want to? Did you have something you wanted to add there? Yeah, and I think for uh, for most of us who as grad students at the time, um, we we really you know we 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 had some fears around you know speaking back, speaking truth to power in such way. But mm-hmm. I think because collectively. Um, we did this in unison in terms of this is how we're experiencing, you know, our academic careers and, and trajectories. 
we felt like it resonated. We resonated with each other and it just really allowed us to just exist um, and be seen and feel visible with the support of someone like Michelle, who is basically more like there's no power dynamic. Um, and so it, it was just really, a really beautiful, organic um, and challenging because we are, you know, we're all scholars. We all, we all have a strong opinions, mm-hmm. you know, we, but we do this in, 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 in community. So it's, it's a really powerful way of, of really challenging the status quo in, in such way and not waiting to be offered a book contract, right. Or not waiting to be invited to publish, but saying, no, we're going to do this. We're going to do this together. Um, and I think it says something about, and our hope is to say something about this is, uh, this is why we collaborate together and and this is the power of this community work. Yeah. And, you know, I think I want to say a little bit about the the process of, you know, getting the book in, in contract and I, and I want to really, yeah, um, yeah and I really want to uh, commend Kristen Buckles, who is the editor in chief over at the university of Arizona press who from the get go from day one was like, this is amazing. I support this project. Mm-hmm. How can we make this happen? Right. And so the five of us, I think it was at a Knox conference, yeah. the National Association of Chicano Cities. Um, we uh, approached her now, and I want to say that I had emailed her previously. So there's, you know, I, I let me say two things. One is I think that um, we are collective because you know, I know for myself, you know, I have been shaped by autonomous, you know, principles that have been, you know, part of my organizing principles always, like non-hierarchical ways of being in community with each other. So I know that that is really, you know, part of of our of our ideology, you know, and I think we all share that. I also want to say that we all bring different strengths. So while, you know, and, and there was an article that was written about us and I was a little shady because I was called the more seasoned scholar. And I'm like, wait, are they calling mm-hmm. me old? <laughs> and um, anyway, but but we all bring different layers of expertise, right? And we talk about this. We would not have come to where we're at had it not been for the ways in which we fit perfectly together, like in this was in this puzzle, right? And so, you know, so yes, I might have different ways of already being connected in the university and the institutions, having been, you know, doing this work for 14 years for my, you know, and then for Christine with her, you know, her art and being able to sort of brand the work that we do um, that makes it so visible is was imperative for us to be recognized, you know? Right. And so we all, like I said, so we all do that. And so, um, and so then when we were deciding, you know, about this anthology and I thought, well, let me shoot a message to, to Kristen. And she, and she was the one that said, yes, come, come meet us. And that's when the five of us, you know, sort of came to her with this proposal um, orally. We really hadn't written much at that point. Um, and she's like, okay, put it in writing and send it to me. Let's take it from there. You know I mean? She just, she wasn't um, like, yeah, no, I don't know. I mean, I think even at that level, the work was recognized as important, you know, and I think mm-hmm. that really gave us that when she gave us the green light, I think it really gave us a sense of empowerment to really trudge forward. I mean, it, between beginning and end, um, you know, I want to say that was Knox 2017. Is that right? No, no, no. Knox no, 15, 2015. No. Sorry. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Knox 2015 to, to four years. I mean, we, we really pushed and worked hard and, 
and it's yeah. out, you know? I mean, it, that's, uh, and it also, again, there were moments in the process where, you know, I, I, maybe I was going through something personal or, or professionally that I just didn't have the time to commit. And so then, the, you know, they would take it over or vice versa. Somebody was defending their di- di- dissertation and or, mm-hmm. you know, applying mm-hmm. for jobs. And so then we would take it over. You see what I mean? So it's like it, yeah. it always, it's the balance of labor and power and support has always you know, moved between us in ways that, and it's not always perfect. Sometimes we call each other out, but we have that relationship to do that. And we've built that, you know? And so (laughs) anyway, so I just wanted to kind of talk a little bit about that, that backstory of how we even came to the press and to really highlight that Kristen Buckles was always supportive. And that is instrumental, I think. I appreciate that because I think it really connects with some of what's mentioned in the introduction about, you know, the, um, uh, you know, the vulnerability, particularly that, that not only scholars of color, but especially women of color face. I mean, you're, you're saying that this is primarily a group of, you know, graduate students with, you know, a tenure track professor that itself is in a, you know, the early part, right, of a tenure, you know, career. These are all incredibly, right, vulnerable positions, right, within yeah. these professions. And, mm-hmm. and the fact that you turn this project around in, or turned it out in four years, mm-hmm. uh, the call out, 86 submit. I can't even imagine. <laughs> I really can't imagine, you know, how y'all did it so quick. But I mean, I, I understand, you know, because you can feel the love, you can feel the passion, you can feel the, we can feel the community that is developed, that has provided, you know, so much of the momentum and support that that y'all have have pulled together to get this out. And it's it's Thank really information, uh, uh, not only inspirational, but it is truly transformative work, as you mentioned, is one of the goals, right, of the project. It, this is not just to add to a, a conversation, right? It's not even to spark a conversation. It is to transform an academy. Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's mm-hmm. a, to transform a profession itself, which is you know broader, mm-hmm. right? Academia itself, with its you know the instit- way it's institutionalized and organized, is is incredibly um, isolating. You know, I mean, just as we exist in like colleges and schools that themselves or you know we're all siloed in our offices that are in different mm-hmm. departments and rarely do, do I know the person that's on the floor above me, you know, uh, mm-hmm. or something like that. Right. So, I mean, all these mm-hmm. just institutional challenges and structures um, that y'all were faced with in, in, you know, both com- first coming together, expressing, you know, your, your voices and your scholarship, and then really turning this into not just a scholarship, but this project, you, you mentioned podcasts, presentations, community engagement, activism, it's mind blowing. And, and mm-hmm. so uh, it, it's wonderful to see how this has evolved. And I appreciate you both for sharing that. Yeah, thank you. I wanted to address um, the, the way the, the, these, the, the book itself, the anthology is, is put together and you really emphasize, right. Um, the role of testimonial, right, as the you know undergrounding or undergrounding method uh, for how you know these essays and, and contributions are are being are coming together. Uh, would you like to speak to that a bit about why you really selected that and, and particularly wanted to emphasize the power of, of testimonial as you know a methodology that's driving the scholarship? Do you want me to go, Michelle, or do you want to yeah. go? No, Dale. Okay. So <laughs> I. I think to and it's something like we we want to before we begin talking about this demonio is like we start the work with the acknowledgments of honoring our mothers and our grandmothers and, and your children you call out your ch- children right away absolutely right? and our children and the biggest mother that sustain sustain us which is Mother Earth and it's just a way of challenging 
you know, heteropatriarchy and really centering the feminine in our children, which have often been marginalized. And so if you don't mind, I want to read the, the part of the, the acknowledgement because yeah, I think ahead. that will lead us into why testimonial. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. I think this is a testimonial, right? Like <laughs> inviting our, our, our generations into this work. So I'm going to start. So we start the acknowledgements by saying, gracias to our children, Milagro, Alonso, Luna, Emiliano, Tino, Hanito, Tlaloc, and Joaquin, because this book would not exist if it were not for them, and all they have taught us beyond the scope of our imaginations. Thank you to our madres, Juana Duarte Caballero, Cristina Luzanilla Uribe, Socorro Salazar Perez, Rosaura Serratos, and Maria Cristina Guerrero Telles. A nuestras abuelitas, Josefina Garcia, Paula Casares Guerrero, Maria Luisa Guante Linares, Teresa Madrigal Telles, Socorro Martinez Crescencia Rodriguez, Francisca Pachinta Peralta Osegueda, Maria Vega Villarreal, Consuelo Chelito Rodriguez, Gracia Contreras Gutierrez Duarte, and Cecilia Contreras del Gran Caballero, and to our ancestors for leading the way and for their mother work, which has sustained our communities, often at a great personal cost to themselves. We honor their labor and their love. And so this is like Roca. Right. Yeah, so, right. <laughs> this is roll call because we acknowledge we're, we're we try to acknowledge all the the labor of our abuelitas and our and our mothers and, and our children are very central to this work. And so moving into this this the question you asked about testimonial, um, you know, based on a lot of the work from Chicana Teoristas, right? Like we have Gloria Ansaldúa, Cheri Moraga but also borrowing from black feminist feminist scholarship, you know, to testimoniar or to, or to, to basically you're, you're calling, you're, you're basically centralizing a truth that's often been uh, erased and neglected. And so we, our call included testimonial, but we also included um, research and empirical re- uh, papers to be included in our, in our, in our manuscript. I'm sorry, in our anthology. Um, but it's it's mostly that work, right? Like we're asking folks to centralize themselves in in, in their research, and a, it was an opportunity for them to speak about their own experiences as they've lived it, as their own truth. Um, and then that followed with some of those hybrid uh, chapters that we got, which is testimonial, married with um, with research, and so those became some of those very powerful contributions. And one of them that I like, we open up the um, the anthology with is actually from Catherine Maldonado. She was one of my my students, informal students, because she came into the McNair office to uh, <laughs> to get support. And so I just became one of her femtors. And her um, her one of her her for that's the chapter the chapter one gang affiliated Chicana teen mama against systemic violence was a hybrid of testimonial and her own lived experience and research. So it's just, it just gives it a different kind of power and visibility um, that we were trying to illuminate with this anthology. And I don't know if you want to follow up with this, Michelle. No, I mean, yeah. I mean, I think, you know, right. In terms of the field of, in the field, testimonial always is about, um, visibilizing the invisible right and so i think that um I, I, you know we're building on that tradition that is you know drawing from 
uh, Latin American histories, right? And so, so we definitely want to draw from that, but also thinking about, um, you know, how it's unique, um, you know, in this iteration. Um, but as Christine was saying, we're also recognizing that, you know, there's the power in telling one's story, you know, because it flips, you know, who has the power to speak. Um, and it also, uh, we recognize the utility of using one's story within uh, uh, the broader, you know, context, right? Whether it's someone's bringing in, you know, like their own research or it's embedded in another, um, someone else's research around their, you know, this point that they're trying to make. So we we sort of recognize that we could use both in the book. So it's not all testimonials, but it is you know, derive from that, that position of speaking back. Right. Well, and what, uh, what I really appreciate about, you know, the, the blending, you know, of testimonial with the scholarship, uh, is that it, it, it really makes, um, it puts front and center what drives, you know, a lot of scholarship, uh, which is, you know, personal experiences. Uh, and, and this is not just, in the field of ethnic studies or, you know, anthropology, sociology, things of that stuff, where oftentimes those things are, are more addressed. I mean, it just is, I mean, I'm in very traditional discipline uh, in, in history. And oftentimes, uh, you know, these are things, these type of connections are things that are very frowned upon that, that we don't discuss or we shouldn't mention. Yet, as I've, you know, come to learn my colleagues, regardless of what they study, uh, you know, there's, there's always some type of, you know, personal connection, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that drives someone to do a certain type of research or scholarship or work, mm-hmm. right, to just really broaden this and put it in a broader term. And um, I think that's one of the things that I really love about how you're, you're really blending these together. It's acknowledging what we all do, and it's putting front and center, you know, mm-hmm. and saying this is, this is not something to shy away from. We shouldn't create these artificial binaries or divisions between, you know, my life and my professional work, right? Because mm-hmm. It, it all blends together. It, it, you use also the the metaphor of the rebozo, right? For somewhat mm-hmm. differently, but I'm also thinking of just how all these things, right, weave together, right? Um, and yet, though, due to the, the the different parts of our lives, whether that's you know work outside the home, inside the home, etc., communities, families, it, it's sort of there's this expectation that we compartmentalize everything, right? Um, and that you kind of live these things fragmented or, or differently, but that's, that's not right. really how it happens. Right. 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 Absolutely. That's exactly what it is. And it's about, you know, sort of coming out of a closet uh, mm-hmm. of mothering. Right. I mean, and that's kind of what we were told in graduate school and so many women in the field have done this for years. Right. Is that mm-hmm. they, they're cloaked almost right. Like this part of your life is not allowed to come out. And we're like, we're mm-hmm. done with that. You know, yeah. because this part of my life shapes everything that I do. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. I can't, I can't, you know, even repeat how many times I even try to count. I think how many times I heard either of, uh, you know, uh, women mentors that I had that were scholars that shared with me or with, you know, classes about, you know, how, you know, they, they had to make decisions about their career, you know, when to have children, you know, when to mm-hmm. do this or that when to go up for tenure, when to write, you know, a, a manuscript or when to try to publish a set or do anything in regards to the field, you know, because of the, the you know, the conflicts or the challenges, you know, that mothering, family life, community work, et cetera, all, all presented. And, Absolutely. Um, it's like the tenure clock or the biological clock, which do you right. use? Yeah. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. I yeah, know that's real. Right. Right. 
Uh, also, your comments reminded me of one of my this one of these really powerful quotes, um, and there's so so many of them from it. But I'll just pull one here, referring to testimonials. A quote here it says, "Our testimonials challenge the silence we hold within ourselves, out of fear of not being academic enough or mother enough, and allow us to reclaim space that would otherwise be marginalized by dominant discourse." Unquote. Mm-hmm. I think just I just feel how that resonates so much, you know, even beyond the academy. And I know that's a big part of your project and your work, you know, to to really transcend, you know, the academy, both to transform it, but to transcend it and to, you know, have a part, vital part of this work, um, you know, to be community work and community engaged and, and more publicly engaged. And regardless of the field or the type of work, uh, the profession you have. Uh, I can feel the power of those words and, mm-hmm. you know, really the, you know, the fear, the uncertainty that goes behind them when you're, when you're trying to balance so mm-hmm. many different responsibilities. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 That's huge. Um, Thank you for reading mm-hmm. that so closely. We really, we really feel honored, honestly. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you. Uh, I wondered also if you could speak to, you mentioned the, the use of the, you know, the term, the metaphor, uh, the rebozo, right. As you know, a metaphor for the project itself. Would you like to speak to that? I can speak on it. Um, so when we were dreaming and imagining this work, and this is before the anthology, it was uh, for our first article. Um, and we were talking about how these stories are testimonials, just as like our lived experiences were so tied into each other that it just, like our stories just made us feel visible and central to like, this is, this is real. Right. So how we understood the rebozo or how we started to theorize the rebozo is we're weaving together these stories, not just our stories, the stories of other mothers, the stories of our own mothers, of our grandmothers, of our aunties. This is intergenerational. So there's something that's the strength and beauty and the symbolism behind the rebozo that holds us that keeps us together. There's, there's a lot of, um, in, in our imagination, right? Like if you think about like what the rebozo stands for, and we talk about this in our article is that nos protegemos con el rebozo. We cover ourselves. We close our hips after birth with the rebozo. We carry our children with a rebozo, but then we also carry the stories of our other colegas and sisters and aunties and mothers with a rebozo. We, we protect with the rebozo. So for us, it's a theoretical symbol, but it's also a very maternal symbol that allows us to feel safe um, and seen and protected. And mm. it's just something that, you know, in Mexico and Central America and, and other places globally, that a rebozo is, it's very much a symbol of that. And I think we wanted to really dig deep into what does that mean and how do these stories weave together and makes it strong. El algodón es un, you know, es una plantita bien sencilla. It's a very simple, you know, humble plant. But with strands weaved together, sewn together, it just makes it a very strong and powerful tool, really. Um, So that for us, theoretically, is what Rebozo stood for, for our work. Thank you. And it also addresses, you know, as I read it, right, the way, um, although, yes, you, you know, collectively you're, you're bringing together Chicanas and, and other um, women of color and, and mother scholars uh, that you, you each, you know, have, 
you know, distinct experiences, mm-hmm. subjectivities, and identities, right? And uh, and that this anthology itself, right, it, it's not a monolithic or claim to t- some type of monolithic experience, but bringing all those interweaving, right, all those experiences together, mm-hmm. you know, into, you know, a project like this. Mm-hmm. Yes, that's actually true. Um, if we, let's get to the... Uh, organization, if you will, we've already mentioned the first part of the, uh, one of the first, I think, contributions that you mentioned is part of that first section on separation, migration, state violence, and, and detention. The book itself is organized, or the anthology is organized into four different sections that that uh, really is, is how you, you structure these together. You want to speak a little bit to how you determine these categories? I mean, is this just what you saw after all these submissions came together? Did you have a some sort of a mind or, or plan going into it that you wanted to address, you know, the, the different parts or issues that are, that are listed here and organized? Yeah. So, um, you know, actually in our retreats, when we uh, started writing together, um, so like I said, our first article that we published, I think was published in 2017 and it was in the Chicana Latina Studies Journal where we introduced the concept of Chicana mother work and, we tried to outline, you know, what we hoped it would be useful for, and then what we hoped, um, how it would impact the university. And then, and as we continued to work together, um, and we got more visibilities, when we sort of started to realize that um, this work wasn't only, didn't only have a life within the university, right? And so, we, uh, we wanted to think about how this concept of Chicana mothering, Chicana mother work, um, also lives in other spaces, right? And so, uh, and so when the idea of the anthology came about, when we were um, um, imagining, you know, what we wanted it to consist of, I mean, it, we could have done an anthology around just Chicana mothers in the academy. I mean, we we would have had enough material, honestly, for something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but we, it, so we actually instead were thinking about what. How, you know, how does this idea impact our community, you know, specifically? And so, in fact, when we sent out the call, it already included these four categories, these four oh, okay. areas. Yeah, because we thought, you know, these are the areas that we um, are interested in highlighting as they affect the experiences of Latina, Chicana, women of color, mothers, you know? Um, and so that's why the first, you know, of course, migration, state violence uh, and detention, I mean, and, and especially now, but always, you know, we wanted to think yeah. about the ways in which, you know, state violence disproportionately affects um, um, our families and our communities and how our families are being separated um, and through detention, deportation, you know, migration, incarceration, um, and that this is something that we've had to attend to um, always, right? Um, and then we also thought that we really wanted to highlight the um, experiences of women of color and uh, Chicana mother activists. And so uh, that's why we also included that experience as one of the areas that we wanted to highlight in anthology. And so right. um, once the you know the submissions came in, then we started seeing where the chapters fit, right? Fit. Um, okay, gotcha. Yeah, Within exactly. That framework. Gotcha. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then I know Christine was going to talk about the other two themes as well. Please, please do. Yes. Yeah. So the the so we have the four themes and the I'm like scrolling through my notes. I'm sorry. 
I lo- I like highlighted them. <laughs> I'm like, where do they go? Um, so these, and then these themes again are so relevant to us now. Mm-hmm. Um, and so part of the other, the other two themes are intergenerational mothering, um, where we, the, the contribute, the contributions or the, the chapters submitted talked about their own experiences with their own mothers or, or maternal figures in their, in their life. And that also includes, which was really awesome to see spirituality and also, um, the mother daughter relationships and education. Right. Um, and so those, those, and then the informal forms of education that that may look like, which could be even learning about the herbs. I think we've lost a lot of connection to, um, because of migration, right? We've lost yeah. a lot of knowledge systems that come from the land and so uh these chapters are really beautiful reflections about that um one talks about like learning about plantitas um through their own mother and grandmother and then how this uh, academic scholar chicana mother scholar is teaching her daughters about the plantita so they don't lose that connection um and then there's another uh, a few other chapters that talk about um like recetas something so simple about recetas um, mm-hmm. But then the conversations ask, you know, you're calling your mother for a receta, then your mother's like, so when are you coming back to your hometown when you're done with that PhD, right? Like, so mm-hmm. there's this really interesting weaving of these themes and it's really beautiful conversations and real hard ones, to be quite honest, right? Like the different the different kinds of struggles that these mother scholars grapple with um, as they're trying to make their way back home. They're also migrating um, to find a job somewhere. Yeah. So it's it's a really uh, it's a really powerful um, set of chapters. The the last chapter is on lost choice of reproductive justice. So in here we talk about the different forms of reproductive justice that also voice the conversations about loss and choice. And it's mm-hmm. something that we didn't see in um, that's you know eso de eso no se habla like you don't talk about those things right right of course right and even within your own comadres like you just just you just shut it out and so this was a a a set of chapters that really discuss and honesty those instances of loss those instances of choice uh we have a very powerful piece on stillbirth and what that felt like um for this mother scholar um because even culturally right we're like we're trying to challenge um, what's spoken about and what is not spoken about by writing about it. So others don't feel um, the shame, the isolation, the depression and anxiety that comes from loss, whether it was by choice or if, whether it was because it just happened. Um, so these are really powerful pieces. And we end with, and I'm just putting a plug in because I, I was part of this collective, so part of this collective, and there's a Clara in Academia at UCLA, where we talk about organizing around parenting student rights as a reproductive choice um, uh, standpoint. Mm-hmm. Um, and so these are, these are like basically the, we had so many amazing, powerful contributions that came in when we had those 86 submissions and it was really hard to choose uh, collectively um, which ones made it to these, to these, these sections. Um, we had discussions and, we challenged each other and we like advocated for ones we advocated for others so it was a really um it was it was a really as a grad student that that you know we were early in our grads grad student 
like careers, we we've never experienced something like this. So it was a really also to say that it was a really um, powerful thing to participate in and, and partake in as grad students. Hmm. Definitely. Thank you for explaining, you know, how the, uh, the themes, you know, as you put of the, uh, you know, of all these, you know, collections and all these contributions. Um, as we, as we wrap up, I was wondering if you could speak to a bit of what's next, you know, for this, this project, because it is so much bigger than this book, uh, right? And, and it's not just, you know, the, the podcast or these various things. Uh, uh, what's next in as this project continues to evolve and, yeah, thank you for asking. You know, we want to, one of the things we want to do is mark our fifth anniversary together this fall. We don't know how, oh. <laughs> <laughs> but we're going to be presenting at NWSA, the National Women's Cities Association Conference in November in San Francisco. So maybe something, we could do something there together. You know, um, it's been busy with the anthology. You know, you've been invited, you know, several places. And so, we, you know, that sort of has been the focus in this last year, I would say. And so we really do want to get back to our podcast. Um, and uh, we now have our season three, you know, sort of lined up and uh, we're going to start getting those episodes um, going and then hopefully out into the public uh, now that the book will have been, you know, out. And then, you know, we can kind of focus on the other areas of our work and, we, you know, we, we, we still need to, we're, we're going to try to do a, another retreat where we dream about what comes next. And I know we have lots of ideas on the table, like children's books and, you know, and a second anthology some people are talking about. And, you know, um, what else did we talk about, Christine? I feel like there's something else big. I feel like there's something else like? that, yeah. Yeah. Can you hear me? Sorry. Yeah. Yes, yeah, yeah. We can hear you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm sorry. Um, and I know we were thinking about a, a calendar project of our of children's artwork, um, yeah. also as as um, and then more swag. Like we, a, a lot of folks really <laughs> like <laughs> they really like our swag, which is really um, awesome. So, but we want we really want to put out their uh, podcast T-shirt um, just because of I guess the colors and Koyashaki wearing headphones. <laughs> People really like <laughs> dig that. Um, so we're, you know, we, we still need to get together and dream. And, and also I, I think, um, all of this work has been, again, a, a labor of love, but we, we, we need to take some time to, to rest and, and retrieve. And we, and like, if we're going to have a retreat, we're thinking, we're like, can we do self-care? Can we go to the hot springs? Can we go to the spa? Um, so that's something we're also thinking about like this. If we're also advocating self-care preservation. We definitely want to take care of ourselves because, you know, um, Ceci and myself uh, wrapped up our dissertations, um, you know, and the book is also a big, we got to celebrate that. It's a big mm-hmm. accomplishment for all of us. So that's what we're thinking about now. So yeah, we're definitely really excited about our season three. We've been really um, thinking through that. I think when we started season one, which there's a relaunch um, on our website um, of season one, when we recorded live, um, we just kind of went with it. And then now it's like, no, we are very intentional. We were intentional then, but we're very intentional about our lineup because we're getting requests now to, to come onto the podcast. So we're like, okay, so we have some work ahead of us. Um, so yeah, we'll see where it takes us. We're really excited. Great. Well, definitely. Yes. Take some time for self-care. Plenty of time. I mean, that's, that's, uh, that's something clearly that, 
that just, uh, you know, it, it's not something that's given to us, right, <laughs> in these fields mm-hmm. in particular and all the work, the overlapping work that, that you're doing. I want to plug the website, uh, chicanamotherwork.com. It is phenomenal. I've just been going through it. I mean, just everything about your projects uh, on the blog, the podcast. Uh, definitely, yeah, do something for some. I'm not seeing I'm not seeing a. There isn't a store on here yet, or anything like that. But yeah, definitely do get some swag out, man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We need to. We need to figure a, that part out. Like how do like make now? That. My mind's like running with all the mm-hmm. gifts I could I could give. You know, <laughs> t-shirts or mugs or whatever stickers. My daughters yeah. and wife would love this stuff. Everyone oh, that's stuff. amazing. No, you know, yeah. you could email us chicanamotherwork at gmail.com and we could get you this stuff out. You know, just to underscore, you know, so we're all you know, we're, we're, we're all doing the work, you know, in our respective jobs. Right. Um, mm-hmm. and then, so the work that we do as a collective is, is you know, not funded in any way. Right. And, mm-hmm. um, and so some of this extra stuff like the podcast and running the blog and, you know, doing, uh, presentations and getting the merchandise, you know, that's stuff that we just are doing on top of everything else. And so we do right. have a place on our website, where people can donate to the project. Um, and then if you're interested in swag, we'll, maybe we can add a link where it says, if you're interested in any of this, you know, then email us and then we can send it out. But at some point to get a store would be awesome. <laughs> we just have to yeah. get there, yeah. you know, online. <laughs> Thank you for the right. idea. Hook it up to an Etsy shop or something. Oh, my daughter's yeah. all into like, right. selling That's stuff a good on idea. there. So there's, yeah, there's tons of ways to do that. But That's I can see just idea. such a. Now I'm thinking like a little capitalist. You know, like, <laughs> right, there's a market for this. You know, like, yeah. But yeah, you got to You got to turn this work right. Um, that you just remind there is so much stuff that we do. You know, both you know as part of this profession that is part of work and expectation, but that is not paid for. And and your mm-hmm. work here, it's wonderful to see how this work and labor of love has ideally also, you know, turned into something that you can get credit for, you know, in uh, your professions. I know that's not the the sole, um, you know, purpose or focus of this in any means, but it's, it's wonderful when those can overlap because yeah, there's all these expectations of mentoring and conference work and all that stuff, you know, that, that it's just, it's not factored into it's expected, right. But it's not factored into exactly how we're compensated or, or what we get time for. Right. So, so yes, take that time. Y'all need to celebrate. I mean, just incredible work. And I want to thank you again, um, you know, for the two of you coming on and, and again, recognize, uh, you know, your co-editors again, Cecilia Caballero, Yvette Martinez, who, uh, Judith uh, Perez uh, Torres, uh, and of course, our two guests today, Michelle Tejas and Christine Vega. Thank you so much for, for being on the podcast today. No, thank Absolutely. you. This thank was amazing. We really appreciate it. Okay. All right. 